All right, Hebrews chapter 9. Here's a question for you to think about. What was the pivotal moment in human history? What was the pivotal moment in human history? The way a person answers that question will say a, a lot about him or her. Let me just give you some of the ideas that, that people have come up with, and I agree that, that these are rather important things, but if this person replies that it was Gutenberg's invention of the printing press, that probably means he thinks history is defined by the progress of ideas. If he answers that the key moment was the publication of Charles Darwin's book on the origin of species, that indicates he supports the abandonment of supernaturalism for naturalism. If he says it was the development of Greek democracy, or if you're British, you might say the signing of the Magna Carta, well, that shows you have a very high level when, it, when it, your opinion of politics. Well, the ancient Greeks, interestingly enough, would have refused to even answer a question like that because uh, they considered that question to be illegitimate. See, the Greeks didn't believe there could be a turning point in history because as far as they were concerned, history wasn't a line or linear, it was circular. History went in circles. And so to them, the individual soul was not immortal. After death, the individual just ceased to exist. So what lasted forever was, for them, the march of time. <laughs> it was just this circular process of history. And this way of thinking, sadly, has seen a resurgence in our Western culture. I don't know if you've noticed over the last several years, uh, well, maybe centuries even, you look at uh, literature and movies and films and so forth, there's this celebration of the circle of life. Well, one of the most influential books ever written attacked this philosophy of history head-on. The book was called The City of God. The author of that book was Christian theologian Augustine of Hippo. Uh, some have called him St. Augustine or Augustine. But he wrote his book to refute the idea, the charge, that it was the rise of Christianity that caused the fall of Rome. He achieved his purpose, by the way. But along the way, I appreciate that, that he articulated the biblical view of history. See, Augustine began his book by noting that there is one event in history that is unrepeatable. And it's unrepeatable by its very nature. And of course he was talking about the death of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So by its very nature, this event could happen only once. As Hebrews reminds us. And so from this insight, uh, Augustine went on to develop a Christian view of history that was linear. He said that history has a start, it had a, a central turning point, and it has a definite conclusion, as far as human history goes. But the book of Hebrews helps us out here immensely. 
it shows us that the decisive turning point of history was the death of Christ. So let's read God's Word from Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 23. Starting at verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. The proposition from our text today is this. God wants you to put your faith in Christ because His sacrifice was sufficient to end the offerings and to put away sin forever. Let's see what this text says. Well, today we're going to see actually four reasons why Christ's sacrifice is the greatest. Four reasons why Christ's sacrifice is the greatest. Number one, Christ's sacrifice purified the heavenly sanctuary. Christ's sacrifice purified the heavenly sanctuary. You see in verse 23 of Hebrews 9, that it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified. But, but the originals in heaven, those heavenly things, the originals, well, they were purified with something better, weren't they? A better sacrifice, which of course was Christ's sacrifice. Now, as I was reading verse 23, I was asking myself, it says it's necessary, now why was it necessary? Well, since God ordained that the forgiveness of sins is through the shedding of blood, and since purification comes through the sprinkling of blood, it's necessary that blood be shed and that blood be applied if the new covenant is to be in force. So the old covenant tabernacle was purified by the sprinkling of blood. But we know the originals in heaven were also purified by Jesus Christ. You say, well, how were the originals in heaven purified? Well, the sacrifice of Christ purified, as it says in the ESV here, the heavenly things. So how could the heavenly sanctuary become defiled, you might ask? How could the heavenly sanctuary become defiled? Well, we can understand how the earthly sanctuary could be defiled since... It was used by sinful people. Uh, we, we know according to the Old Testament that each year on that great day of atonement, the tabernacle was purified through the sprinkling of blood. But how could a heavenly sanctuary ever become defiled or become unclean? 
Well, we need to remember, certainly, nothing in heaven is defiled in a literal sense. There, God's holy and can't allow sin into His presence there. So sin can't pollute the sanctuary of God. But nothing in the earthly tabernacle was literally defiled by sin either. Uh, it all had to do with people's relationship to God. See, the blood sprinkled on a piece of furniture in the tabernacle, for example, it didn't change the nature of that piece of furniture just by sprinkling blood on the altar of incense or the, the Ark of the Covenant. It, it, it's, it didn't change its very nature, did it? Of course not. And so, But what did change is God's relationship to those pieces of furniture and to His people. God could now enter into communion with people because there was sprinkling of blood. There was a sacrifice. And so through Jesus Christ, we who are sinners can now enter into that holy of holies in the heavenly sanctuary. Yes, physically, you and I are still on earth at the moment. But spiritually, we can commune with God in the heavenly holy of holies. How can you do that? because of the great high priest who has gone into the heavenly holy of holies. So in order for God to receive us into His heavenly fellowship, that means the blood of Jesus Christ has to be applied in heaven. And so as a result, we are now able to enter into God's presence by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so let me just kind of summarize what's going on here for a moment in the writer's greater discussion here of particularly chapters 8 and 9, we see the Old Covenant was established by blood. And so was the New Covenant, by the way. But the New Covenant was established on the basis of a better sacrifice. And it was also applied in a better place. And so those copies, as your Bible says, were purified by the blood of animals. But the original sanctuary was purified by the blood of Christ. And so that's the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making here. So, obviously, this is a far more costly sacrifice. We, we want to take note here that God was satisfied with what Christ did. Now, one of the ways we can see that is, is through Christ's resurrection, His ascension into heaven. Hebrew, or, no, sorry, Philippians tells us that God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, my friends, you can see in Philippians 2, God is immeasurably satisfied with Jesus Christ. However, there is some bad news here. God is not satisfied with us. And that's the reason we have to come to Him through Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the only one who satisfies the Father. And therefore, nobody comes to Him except through Jesus. And so this idea, this false idea that God just accepts us as we are, is utterly unbiblical. Do you understand? God does not accept you as you are. Yes, we come to Jesus just as we are, since there is, is, is nothing worthwhile that we can actually bring to Him. 
But He doesn't present us to the Father just as we are. Do you see the difference? You come as you are, but God the Father can't accept you as you are. See, we're totally unpresentable as we are. Otherwise, we could present ourselves to God. But we can't. We can't. And so when Jesus presents us to the Father, He presents us in Himself. See, God looks at us and sees Jesus. And so when Jesus represents us to His Father, He is presenting us to Him, uh, to the Father in Himself. You enter into God's presence, and God sees Jesus instead of me. He sees Jesus' righteousness instead of my unrighteousness. He sees Jesus' sacrifice instead of my sin. He sees Jesus' payment for my sin instead of the penalty that I deserve for my sin. You see how that works? See, Jesus recognized the indebtedness of sinners. He recognized that God had to be satisfied. And He was. And His wrath it was satisfied. The penalty of sin was satisfied as Jesus offered His blood. He offered Himself on our behalf. That's why it's important for us to believe that Jesus is a substitutionary atonement for our sin. So the first way we see that Jesus' sacrifice is the greatest is because Jesus didn't stay here on earth. He ascends to heaven and He presents His Himself there in the heavenly sanctuary. But number two, Christ's sacrifice gives us representation before God the Father. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. See, Christ did not go into an earthly tabernacle or temple. It wasn't made with hands, as the Scripture says. He went into the very presence of God. He, he went into the heavenly, real, holy of holies. Why? Well, the text says He did it for us. That's, that's for the Christians, for the believers, those who have put their faith in Christ. And when He went in, He took you with Him, if you're a believer. Not literally. But He ushered us into the very presence of God. And that's why His appearance in the presence of God is on our behalf. See, in other words, what is He doing? He's representing us as a high priest who has offered the perfect sacrifice in satisfaction for our sins. He is our mediator and our advocate who is constantly interceding for us. And so all that Christ did and does is on our behalf. So my friends, every time you pray, and you end your prayers by saying, in the name of Jesus, Amen. Keep this in mind. Because you can't say that, you can't talk to God the Father without Jesus. Without Jesus representing you before the Father, there is no communion between you and God the Father. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that I am able to commune and talk with Him. May we remember that every time we pray. So the second way that Jesus Christ sacrifices the greatest is, is that He's representing us as believers before God the Father. 
Number three, Christ's sacrifice is final and complete. It is final and complete. That's the point of verses 25 through through 28 here. It is final and complete. There, There can be, in other words, there can be nothing incomplete or temporary about Christ's ministry. To see this truth, I've made a little table here comparing the old Mosaic covenant that was for Israel with the new covenant under Christ here. So I ask this question again, why is Christ's sacrifice final and complete? Let's look at these verses and and see why Christ's sacrifice is final and complete. And you'll you'll see how the table uh, fills itself out as we go along here. First of all, First of all, Christ made one sacrifice, and only one sacrifice. Did you see that in verse 25? Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. So Christ didn't have to offer himself repeatedly or often uh, as the the earthly or, or Israel's high priest did. They had to continually make offerings of atonement and they had to do it every year every year they had to do it for themselves before they were able to go into that holy of holies to offer for israel so christ's sacrifice was better far better because he only had to make one offering he did it once and that's it it's done one sacrifice why is it final and complete number two we see that christ shed his own blood it was his own blood israel's priests what did they do read leviticus read exodus see israel's priests sacrificed animals constantly sacrificing animals entering into these holy places with the blood of the animals and they would sprinkle it on all the the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle and temple but because christ is perfect he became the lamb of god the perfect Sacrifice. Therefore, we don't need an earthly high priest. We don't need any anything or anyone else shedding blood. You don't need to shed your blood for your sin because Jesus did it for you. Number three, why is it final and complete? Because Christ put away sin. He put away sin. Look, look at verse 26. This one comes from verse 26 because it says, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but he didn't. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. How did he do that? By the sacrifice of himself. So, unlike those, all those thousands, millions of animals that died under that old covenant, all they did was just cover sin they didn't ultimately deal with the sin they were looking for the lamb of god to come so the old as those old sacrifices they were helpful they were pointing to something greater and jesus comes as the lamb of god and he removes the sin so i want to address a heresy that has been around for centuries now it's called the roman catholic teaching on the perpetual offering of Christ. It's heretical, heretical doctrine, and it's been around for centuries, contradicts this biblical teaching about the finished work of Christ. 
let me just address this for a moment. This teaching states that the priesthood of Christ is a perpetual priesthood. His sacrifice, and, and, and sacrifice, of course, is an essential part of being a priest. Therefore, they conclude that the sacrificial offering of Christ must also be perpetual. In other words, it's continually ongoing. So what is Catholicism doing in their heresy there, their false teaching? They're undermining the power and significance of Christ's one-time and, and, and only true sacrifice. So this doctrine is plainly reflected every time you see the crucifix, that pretty much universal symbol of Roman Catholicism being the crucifix. Uh, whether in pictures or sculptures, however you see it, the cross rarely seems to be empty. There's a person hanging on the cross, right? Instead of it being empty, there's a person hanging there representing something. So to Catholics, Jesus is still being crucified. That's why it's important for you to every week go to the Mass, continually go through that sacrifice process again and again. But praise God, Jesus told us to celebrate the Lord's Supper, or you might call it communion. And in, in the Lord's Supper, we remember Christ's sacrificial death. But notice we haven't crucified Christ. We haven't sacrificed Christ. He, he commanded us to remember what He's already accomplished. He is not to be re-sacrificed, because the Lord commanded His disciples to remember His death until He comes, not to redo it. Big difference. And that's why... That's why there were reformers who were who died. They were burnt at the stake for that very issue because they recognized the heresy involved here. You cannot perpetually per- perpetually offer Christ because it was a one-time sacrifice, whereas it says here where he finally and completely put away sin. What else do we see here? We see that Christ's sacrifice is for all ethnicities. Praise God. It's not just for a Jew or, a, or a, an Israelite. Verse 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, many people could enjoy the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. See, the Old Covenant was for Israel. It was for Israel. Yes, others got to enjoy the benefits. And we know the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 says that through Abraham's offspring and, and his, his seed would eventually come one that all ethnicities of the earth would be blessed. But the new covenant is for all ethnicities. And the Abrahamic covenant was pointing to that. Praise God. Because most of us here are not of Israel, are we? We also see that Christ entered heaven, and he remains there. Now that's different from the old covenant, because look what verse 24 says, that Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Israel's high priests, see, they weren't allowed to stay in that most holy place. They were only allowed in there one time a year, and it was only for a short period of time. They were allowed to go in there 
do their work, sprinkle the blood, offer incense, and they had to leave. But Christ, we see here, entered into heaven, and he doesn't have to leave. He's remained in heaven for some about 2,000 years, and he's going to remain there until he returns to the earth. Verse 27, very poignant point that needs to be made. And notice there is, this is the only one here out of all these points on your table that is the same with the Old and the New Covenant. We see that here that all people must die and face judgment. All people must die and face judgment. A lot of people want to know that. People want to know, what, what's going to happen to me after I die? Uh, you know, is my body just going to be disintegrated into nothing, or am I going to be absorbed into this great cosmic sea? Well, that was the general view of the ancient Greeks. And people who look to Eastern traditions, particularly to reincarnation, have little hope, my friends. Little hope. See, they think of souls as just returning to the earth for this near endless toil just one life after another until finally you meet your reward, which is oblivion. Wow, what hope is there in that? The Christian answer, God's answer sorry, is found in Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Therefore, here's the point, my friends. There are no multiplications of a person's life. You will not experience multiple lives. There is this life that God has given to you, and then you experience death. There are no others. And then after death, of course, comes judgment, where all will stand before God's holy throne. There is a resurrection for both the just and the unjust. The Bible tells us all will die, and after death you come to stand before God, And you will be measured according to God's perfect standard and His holy law. So my friends, do you know what this means for you and for me and for others? This rules out the second chance theory, sorry. It rules out the second chance theory that some people have. And the idea is you say, well, what is that? Well, some people think that, hey, I can deny Jesus Christ here in this life, and then, uh, then I can... I can get another chance when I see Jesus later. Well, here's what God says. The answer is no, because after your death is judgment. And so my question for you is, are you ready? Are you ready? So as you compare those two covenants, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant that God gave to Moses and Israel, And the new covenant, we can see the work of Christ is completely done. It is final. And it's eternal. But on the basis of His completed work, Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven. He is ministering there in heaven on our behalf. Praise God. But that's not all. Because verse 28 also gives us a fourth reason why Christ's sacrifice is the greatest. We see that it gives us a better hope. We have a better hope as believers. Because look what it says here in verse 28. That Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time 
not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Wow, we have a brilliant perspective here on Christ's return. Clearly He's returning. Now the perspective comes from Israel's history. Okay? You need to understand some events going back to the Jewish Day of Atonement. On the Jewish Day of Atonement, on that great day, the congregation would watch as their high priest for that year would enter into the sanctuary. And he would walk in carrying a a bowl of blood. The blood had come from the sacrificial offering, from, from from an innocent animal that had shed its blood that would just cover the sins of of the people of Israel for that year. And then the congregation of Israel would be standing outside because they weren't allowed into the most holy place. They're standing outside. It's like they're excited, but kind of fearful, maybe even at the same time, maybe even with bated breath, you know, wondering what's going to happen, waiting outside until the high priest emerged. And if he did survive and he walked out of there, his return told them that the offering on their behalf had been accepted by God. Now, you need to understand the history to understand the connection here to Jesus Christ. See, Christ entered not into a temple made with hands, but He enters into the heavenly sanctuary, the real thing, the heavenly thing. He goes there and He appears for us in God's presence. But we see that He's going to appear a second time And this time, when He comes, He's bringing salvation. Now, if you don't understand that, maybe it's possibly because you don't understand the Bible talks about salvation in three senses. Three senses. And so we need to praise God that Christ is coming again, and when He comes, He will be king and priest. But look at the... I'll explain the three senses in a moment, but look at the verse 28, because it says the word waiting... That word waiting is pointing to the fact that believers should be longing for Christ's return. So my friends, are you? Are you waiting? Are you ready for Christ to return? He said He's coming. Are you ready? We should be consciously anticipating His second coming. Are you? So those who are saved and share in the hope of Christ's return are safe. We're safe. This should be a a wonderful thought. should be a wonderful thought. And so even though we still have earthly struggles, Christians can and must hold to the hope that we are eternally secure in Christ right now. I, I, I have the confidence, based on God's promises in Scripture, that absent from this body is to be present with my Lord Jesus Christ. And we're absolutely saved now, but we also see Christ is coming again to complete our salvation experience. You understand your salvation experience, eternal life is not done now. It's not done now. Do you know that a believer's salvation is past, present, and future? What do I mean by that? Let's start with past. It's past in the sense that we are saved and we're united with Christ right now. There is a sense that your eternal life is going on right now. If you've put your faith in Christ alone, you are saved now. 
It's future in the sense that we will be saved out of this world into eternal freedom from sin when Christ returns. <laughs> and, and all of God's people should be shouting, Hallelujah! Don't, can't you wait to get off the sin-cursed earth? Can't you wait to get away from your sin-cursed body? When the, the curse of sin will be removed. You'll have a glorified body. You might have aches and pains and all kinds of other issues you have to deal with now, but there, my friends, there's coming a day when you'll have eternal freedom from, from sin itself and all the effects of sin. and You can run around heaven feeling none of those effects ever again. And so we should be eagerly waiting in the presence because your salvation is real. You have been justified if you're a believer in Christ. And as a result of that justification, that present salvation, you can rejoice in the past. Christ has done this work for you. It's done. It's complete. It's final. And then as a result of that, I can look forward to my glorification. I'm anticipating a new heaven and a new earth. That's the future salvation. Praise God. The old earth will be destroyed. The old heavens will be destroyed. It will be completely new because that's what God said He would do. Read Revelation 20-22. through 22. That's what's going to happen. And so, my friends, because of that truth, you need to be ready. Are you ready? Have you put your faith in Christ alone? You must, because there isn't a greater sacrifice. There isn't a better deal yet to come. It is the greatest of all deals. Because what did this sacrifice accomplish? You remember the proposition? God wants you to put your faith in Christ alone because it was His sacrifice that did away with all those offerings and has finally and completely put away sin. There's nothing else. Have you done that? Are you ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You for accepting Christ's sacrifice. Thank you for doing for us what we could have never done for ourselves. We're thankful for your love in sending your only Son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived the perfect life in our place. He kept the law, fulfilled the law, died as the perfect sacrifice in our place, was buried, and he rose again and ascended into heaven. We're thankful that He went there to heaven, to the to not copies, but to the real thing. We don't have to go into earthly temples and tabernacles anymore. We don't have to slay animals anymore. Because Christ is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. May we put our faith in Christ alone. May we believe in His sacrifice and that there isn't anything better, nothing that even comes close. Would you be gracious to us? We are so often tempted to put our faith and our trust in things that do not satisfy and will never meet our needs. Forgive us when we do that. Draw our attention back to Christ. Keep our focus looking to Him at all moments. 
May we stand in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.